Right, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be continuing our series in the book of Genesis. Um, so if you've got a Bible, you want to open it up there. It's very easy to find because it's the first couple of pages of the Bible. And we are now in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you haven't got a Bible with you, I'm sure some of the guys could go out and get some Bibles and, and hand them out. That would be really helpful. Craig, will you go and grab some Bibles and hand them out? Or are you going to Sunday school? So I'm going to get some Bibles and hand them out so everyone has one that needs one. Um, so you can follow along the text and make sure that what I'm preaching is from the Word and not just my own opinions. Because we're going to learn some really important stuff about the world and how God created the world to be for us as humans today. And it's important that we grasp it together as a church, particularly in the society that we live in where things are being blurred and changed. So let's just read this along, Genesis chapter 2. And then we'll pray again and ask for God's help. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Who needs a Bible? Anyone want a Bible? Don't be shy. If you haven't got a Bible, there you go, Florence, get one. Anyone else need a Bible? Yeah, go on. Lisa will get one as well. Don't be shamed. It's all good. Sam, Lisa wants one. <laughs> you get no free Coca-Cola with it or popcorn. <laughs> cool. Genesis 2. Be on about page 2 of the, of the Bible. It says this, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the, from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second, second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Amen? Let's ask for God's help. Dear Lord, thank you for your holy word to us today. We pray you might help us to understand it, and I pray that we might see the glory of Jesus in this text as well. In his name we pray. Amen. So uh, one of the headline news in Scotland, if you were following along with the news at all, has been that the Conservative government in England has blocked Scotland's legislation, making it easier for people to transition their sex from male to female or male to female. The Scottish government had passed this legislation, making it easier uh, for people to transition, and they lowered the age from 18 to 16. And the Conservative government have stepped in, and there's a big hoo-ha about whether they should have been able to do that legally or not. Now, whether they are able to do that is up for debate. I don't know. But these questions that have been asked by the Scottish government and the British government at large comes down to how we think we are created and whether there's a pattern to the world, who we are, and who God is. These are bigger questions than whether someone can change their sex or not. This is even uh, deeper than that. It's a deeper foundation than that. It's who we are as people. Has God created us in a certain way? If God has created the world to function a certain way, with a set order for us to flourish, then we must understand how God has created us and how God has created the world originally to be, submit to it, and enjoy it. Anything contrary to that is rebellion against God and simply brings confusion and disorder to the world we live in. We're swimming upstream. We're going against the grain of what God has created. And as we come to chapter 2, that's what we see. We see a little bit more about how God has created the world and how he's created us as human beings in his image. Chapter 2 zooms in on the creation of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And we learn some really key things about how God originally intended the world to be before the fall. Now, before we get into the text, you might be thinking, why is there a second account of creation in chapter 2? Why does the writer of Genesis zoom in on the creation of human beings again? I thought we did that in chapter 1. We've seen that already. God's created human beings. Why does God, or why does the writer go in to chapter 2 on this subject again? I thought we'd done all that. I thought it was all finished. Well, the reason is because Genesis 1 is like a big picture look at the creation of the world. And Genesis 2 zooms specifically in on us as human beings. If you like, Genesis 1 is like taking a big picture from space. Genesis 2 is like taking a selfie looking at us as human beings. Genesis 1 is like the big picture view from space. This is how God created the whole world. And then Genesis 2 is like the selfie, uh, looking at how we've been created and what the pattern is for us as human beings. And these creation accounts don't contradict each other. They complement each other and help us see a little bit more about what God has, how God has created the world. And the main point I want you to go away with this morning is this, if you zone out of anything else, 
And you go away with this. God's provision in this chapter. I want you to go away seeing God's generous provision for his human beings, for us in the world. I want to see how God generously cares for and provides for the first humans and subsequently all of us. And we see that in five different ways, five brief ways this morning that God generously provides for the first humans and therefore for us as well. Okay? You with me? Let's go. So the first thing is God lovingly creates us. God lovingly creates that. We creates us. We see that in verses 5 to 7. Now verses 5 to 6 it communicates the first humans were created. There was no shrubs and there was no plants in the land. There was no rain for them to grow. And there was no man to work the ground. In other words, the creation was waiting for the creation of man. God had created the vegetation and the seeds in day three, but they began to grow and they began to sprout as soon as God had created the first humans to work the land in day six. Now, a question you might have just jumped over is, how can anything be sustained if in these first verses there's no rain? Did you see that? It seems to be that before the flood, there was a different system to water the earth and sustain life. So post-fall, water evaporates from the sea, condenses, turns into rain, and then waters the earth. But in the original world, before the fall, there seems to be no rainfall. The daily water supply came from local evaporation and springs from underneath the surface to water the land. And that's why there's no rain for the first uh, few years of people being here on earth. But anyway, the shrubs and vegetation are waiting for the creation of man. And look at verse 7. God forms the man. Do you see that? He's formed from the dust of the ground and God breathes life into him. And just notice that word formed. Man is not created out of nothing like the rest of the universe. He's created from what God has already created, the dust of the earth. And the language that is used is like of a potter taking a piece of clay and forming a vase or something. Or a child getting their Play-Doh and forming their Peppa Pig toy or whatever it is that they want to make. It's that kind of intimate language that's used here. God is forming the first human beings like that, that potter with a piece of clay. He shapes Adam from the dust of the ground and then he breathes life into him. And just notice the intimacy of what God creates here. Just imagine him forming Adam perfectly as he wants him to be, like that potter of a piece of clay and then breathing life into Adam. And also see who we are. We are dust, but we are also made at the same time, in the image of God. In other words, we're earthy and we're physical, and yet we're also spiritual beings and eternal at the same time. And again, notice that we're similar to the animals in that we're created from the dust of the earth, and yet we're very different. As we've seen before in the last couple of chapters, there's no room here for an evolutionary process. The animals and the humans are created very separate. God creates humans exactly as he wants them to be. 
crowned with dignity and crowned with honor. We are, as I said last week, the pinnacle of God's creation. Earthy and yet eternal. He's the potter and we are the clay. This is important for us to understand this morning. We are both dust and glory. We've been created with infinite dignity in the image of God. And yet at the same time, we are finite, aren't we? And we're frail and we fall apart. And it's important that we understand that if we forget that we're made in the image of God, we're going to act like the animals. We're going to act like animals. Just go uptown on a Saturday night when people are drunk and out of their faces. What are they acting like? They're acting like animals. They've forgotten the dignity of how God has created them to be. On the other hand, when you forget that you're made of dust, you forget that you're ultimately dependent on the Lord. We have to hold both together. You are dust, dependent on the Lord, and yet you are a man or woman made with dignity and with honor, made in God's image, lovingly created and yet dependent on the Lord. That's who we are. That's the first thing. God provides by creating us beautifully, dignified, with honor, earthy and yet eternal. Second thing we see in the text is God's gracious provision of a beautiful garden. God provides this amazing and beautiful garden for Adam and then Eve to live in. The place, as we all know, is called Eden. It's called Eden. And this is not like a garden like you get in Nidri that's not being looked after very well. This place is a paradise. The word Eden literally means delight. It means delight. It's delightful to look at. The trees that God provides are delightful to taste. It's a place that is delightful and enjoyable to be in. Verse 9 tells us the trees are good to look at. In other words, they're beautiful. God hasn't just created the, the trees and said, I've just created these so that you can have some food. He's also created them in a way that we can understand that they are beautiful. Again, that's why we're different to the animals. You don't get a bunch of cows in the field sitting on the fence thinking, that's a beautiful sunset tonight, isn't it? They're just moving, moving along, eating the grass or sleeping. They don't look at the sunset and think that's amazing. Oh, I don't think they are anyway. David Attenborough hasn't said that to me yet. And yet that's what we do, don't we? When we are observing the world, we say, wow, isn't that an amazing sunset? Isn't that beautiful? That's God. That's how God created the world to be. That's how God created us to understand that beauty. And not only are the trees beautiful to look at, but they're tasty. The food that's created for Adam and Eve is tasty. I mean, again, the Lord God could have given us just gruel to eat. He could have just given us one taste. He could just be eating the grass of the field like cows. But no, God has created the world with hundreds of tastes and literally thousands of different recipes. Again, just this week at my house, we had five different meals. We had chicken fajitas one night. We had curry and rice another night. We had burgers and chips another night. Sausage and mass, mash, and homemade pizzas. All lovely food, all different tastes, different textures. So we didn't get too bored of different meals. That's all from God. That's the, 
That's the world God's created us in. Not only does God place Adam in a garden with beautiful trees, but it also tells in verse 10 that there are crystal clear rivers. And it's a land, verse 12, teeming, overflowing with beautiful jewels to look at and to touch. And God's care for human beings here and the, the garden he's created and the way that he's formed Adam is shown in the term that is used to describe who God is. Just look at the text again. You probably skipped over it. Verse 4, notice that in that day, it's the Lord God who made the earth and the heavens. And all the way through the chapter, you'll see it's not just God that the writer uses. It's the Lord God. What's going on there? What's happening? Well, in chapter 1, it's just God creating, just the word God. In chapter 2, it's the Lord God. What's the difference? Well, in the Hebrew language, God is translated, or the word that's translated God is Elohim. It means God or ruler or supreme one or majestic one. But when you see the word Lord anywhere through the Bible in capital letters, that's from the word Yahweh. Yahweh. And that's God's personal name that God gives to the people of Israel and to us. So in chapter 1, we see the word Elohim used, the majestic one, the supreme one, creating the whole world. But when we come and zone in onto human beings, do you see that word, that term? A more personal name is used. Lord God. And so what this chapter is telling us is that God is majestic. He's supreme. He's amazing. He's sovereign. He's over all. And yet, he's personal and close. He forms the garden. He forms the first human beings. If you want fancy language, he's both transcendent, he's overall, and he's imminent. He's close to us at the same time. That's the God we worship, greater than we could ever imagine or conceive of and get our heads around, and yet close and personal and with us. Again, God is so generous here, isn't he? provides the food, provides the rivers, provides the jewels, he provides the tree of life, beautiful place, a lush place, a bountiful place, a place of order. It's a, will, it's a garden, not a wilderness. And the Lord God forms Adam and places him in this garden. When we stop and just think about the world we live in and the way that God's created us, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? The world we live in is amazing. The provision of God is so abundant. You know, we have absolutely no reason today to be discontent. Absolutely no reason. We have absolutely no reason to grumble. We have every reason to give thanks. As Christians, when we look at what God has created for us and how God has formed us, our hearts should abundantly be filled with thankfulness. doesn't mean we can't get sad. Of course, we get sad and we mourn. It's a broken world we live in. But that's why Paul says we were rejoicing and sorrowful at the same time. Because we can be thankful for all that God has created us, created for us in this world. 
Third thing we see in the text, God doesn't just form the human beings. He doesn't just provide a beautiful garden. He also gives us boundaries. He also gives us boundaries in verses 15 to 17. The Lord God places Adam in the garden and he gave him the job of working and keeping the garden. Again, we looked at that last week, how work is important. It's important for us, gives us meaning, gives us purpose, helps us be productive. However, there's one rule that Adam is given. Do you see this? One rule, verses 16 and 17. One command. You can eat any tree. Any tree. Any of the fruit. But not this one. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, as I was thinking through this command, and I don't know how your mind works, a number of questions came to my head. The first question was, what, what is this tree? The second question was, how can they have a knowledge of good and evil if there's no evil in the world, if it's a perfect world? Three, why did God even place it in the garden anyway? What's that all about? Well, we don't know what kind of tree it was. Do not be confused by the cartoons that have come out Subsequently, since that, it's not an apple tree. <laughs> Adam and Eve didn't eat an apple first. We don't know what fruit it was. But there was nothing evil about the tree because the world was created perfect, remember, at the beginning. What about the knowledge of good and evil? What does that mean? Well, before the fall, this means that Adam and Eve were innocent. They were not even aware of what it really meant to break the law of God. So think of a child that's really small, and they're not brought up in a Christian family, maybe, for example. They don't know that taking the Lord's name in vain is a sinful thing. They don't know it's evil. So as they grow up, they just copy exactly what everyone else is doing. They're two, they're three years old, they don't understand. Until they're told it's sinful. Then they're brought from a place of innocence to a knowledge of evil. Well, before Adam and Eve ate of the tree, that's where they were at. They were innocent. They didn't know right from wrong at that time. Anyway, why did God place that tree there? Why, why give them the choice of even disobeying? What, why do that? Well, remember, God created us to love God, to serve God, and to worship God. But love is the choice, isn't it? Love is not love if it's forced. Love is not love if it's manipulated. So this tree was placed in the garden to test man's love. It was a tiny, small restraint in the midst of a beautiful garden. I mean, Adam could ride on the back of lions. How fun would that be without them biting him? He could swim in these refreshing waters that were beautiful and crystal clear, of no pollution in them. He could eat from any tree that he wanted. He could eat from the tree of life itself. But he couldn't eat from one tree among thousands or hundreds at the time. It's like putting a, a, a child in a toy shop and saying, at Smith's, you can enjoy any toy you want. Just enjoy the Playstations, enjoy the Xboxes, enjoy the Pokemon cards, enjoy... Every toy you want in this shop. But this one at the front, don't touch that one. It's the only one you're not allowed to touch. The rest of it, enjoy. And to your heart's content. Have fun. Do your, do your thing. The question is, 
will Adam and Eve choose to love God and listen to his voice and trust in him and rest in him? Or would they do their own thing? And we'll get onto that in chapter 3. But one thing is clear, isn't it, from the Lord? The Lord is very clear about the boundaries here. He says, eat of anything you want, just the one tree. It wasn't hard. And the consequence was very clear. Eat that tree and you'll die. Doesn't mean it's his words. Doesn't make it complicated. If they eat of the forbidden tree, they will die. That means physical and spiritual death will enter the world. Why? Because their relationship will be broken. And so death and decay would enter in. And it's interesting, just as I was researching it this week, um, that gerontologists, that's people who study the aging process, don't understand why we age. They don't understand how or why we age. Why? Because biologists have seen that our human bodies have everything in them to keep us going for eternity. Why? Why are we dying then? Why do we age like we do when we've got everything to keep ourselves going? Well, we know the Bible gives the answer because death entered the world in chapter 3, and we'll get on to that. Decay came into the world. Before that, Adam and Eve could live forever. They eat of the tree of life, and they live physically and spiritually forever before God's presence. But here's the point. The boundaries that God has given us are a good thing. The commands of God are always good because they flow from a good God. He was saying to Adam and Eve, obey me and you will be free. Obey me and you will have joy. Obey me and you will be blessed. Obey me and you have life as it was intended to be. And the same is true today. Obeying God brings blessings. It brings freedom. It brings joy. Disobeying God, sinning against God, brings slavery, brings destruction, and it brings death. However, our society teaches the opposite, doesn't it? We think freedom from boundaries brings blessings. We think obedience, oh, that's so boring, that's so joyless. We look at God's commands and think they're so restraining. Why, doesn't, why don't we just do our own thing? That's why the song from Frozen is so popular. Let it go. Don't hold me back anymore. I don't want the boundaries anymore. I want to do my own thing. That's not how the world works. We need boundaries. You can't enjoy sports without boundaries. You can't cook recipes without following the order and stages of the recipe book. We cannot enjoy each other without there being boundaries between us. And our society is overwhelmed with anxiety and, uh, and sadness and discontentment and so much confusion. Why? Because people think they know better than God. People think that without the boundaries in life, that they'll have life in all its fullness. And yet all it brings is chaos. All it brings is destruction to people's lives. Remember, the boundaries that God has given us are a bountiful provision from God so that we can live and flourish. Instead of rejecting God and rejecting his commands, we should pray along with the psalmist, your hands have made me. Your hands have fashioned me. 
Therefore, give me understanding to learn your commands. That should be our prayer. God, you've made me. You've created me. You've given me the boundaries in your word. Help me, therefore, to submit to you and learn what that means so that I may flourish and honor you in my life. Four, we see God's provision of friendship in this chapter. God provided and formed us, uh, physical bodies. He's formed a, a beautiful garden for the people to live in. He's uh, given us boundaries that are good for us. Fourthly, he's provided friendship. And we see that in verses 18 to 23. Verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. All the animals so far have mates. They've been created in pairs. But Adam has no one to be suitable to be his companion. And it's the first time in the first two chapters that something has not been good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. So the Lord calls the animals to Adam. He names them, showing his intellect and his dominion over the animals. But none of the animals are quite right for Adam. So the Lord causes Adam to fall into a very deep sleep. He opens them up, takes one of his ribs out, and forms the woman. Notice what's happening here. The man created from the dust. The woman is created from Adam's side. She's been perfectly fashioned, perfectly created to be a companion and a helper for Adam. And when Adam meets Eve after being in that deep sleep, he's delighted, isn't he? Verse 23. He breaks out into a little song. Here is one who's like me, but not like me. Here is one who's been perfectly created for me to be my companion. She's literally from him, not of the dust, but from his sides, and so he calls her woman. Now, before I say a few things on marriage as a final point, notice here that God provides friendship and companionship for Adam. We've all been created as social creatures. That's why friendship is such a gift. Friendship is such an amazing provision from the Lord, whether that's within marriage between husband and wife or whether that's other than that. In fact, friendship is one of the most important provisions God has made for us. Loneliness, on the other hand, is one of the saddest and darkest states of life, isn't it? Some of us have felt that deeply in our lives, feeling alone in the world without anybody around us to understand us. But our lives are so much richer when we have friends to spend time with, do life with, hang out together, laugh together, mourn together, go through difficult times together. That's the way God created it to be. That's the way that we have been made. That's something that God, again, has provided for us. And so it's important that you invest your life in good friends. Friendship's in a, a gift from the Lord, and so you should thank God for the friends that you have in your life. Spend time with them and enjoy them. Because that's what God has created for you as a gift. But let me end with God's final provision here, and that's of marriage, and say a few things about that as we end in verses 24 and 25. Adam and Eve is the first marriage. And it tells us a few things that are important for us to understand, particularly in today's society. One, marriage 
is between one man and one woman for life. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. It's been created to be monogamous. See that? It's right in the text. Second thing is, look, the sexes here are what you call binary. The world has been created male and female. That means we cannot change our sex no matter how we feel. Again, that's why the, the SNP's legislation that's going through at the moment is so damaging. Yes, we should empathize with those who struggle with what's called gender dysphoria, but we shouldn't affirm it because the world is created in a certain way. We call it loving, though, when we change marriage and we allow people to change their sex. But God would say that is very unloving and very hateful to even affirm that. Marriage was made to be between man and woman, and that's the way God created it. Third thing we see here is marriage is supposed to be decisive. Husband leaves his mum and dad and joins with his wife. They become a new family unit. They leave and they cleave. Finally, look, marriage is meant to be complementary. Man and woman complement each other. Don't read here in the text, helper as inferior. I know some women are thinking, I'm nobody's helper. I'm nobody's helper. I'm my own woman. I'm not here to help man. I'm not less than a man. What are you saying? That's not what it says here. The word helper, did you know, is used to describe God throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 7, in Psalm 33, verse 20, in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, God is called our helper. This is not about one sex being better than another. This is about function within church and within marriage. Adam was created to lead Eve. While Eve was created to be a suitable companion and helper for Adam. Both were equally formed in the image of God, but with different roles. He's a leader, she's the helper. He was supposed to lovingly and compassionately lead his wife, and Eve was supposed to help and submit under his loving headship so that they might grow and they might flourish. Here's the important point, though. Notice that the institution or the creation of marriage is an ordinance set up by God at the very beginning before the fall. In other words, this has been set in stone. This is the way God has created the world to be. It is the foundational stone in creation, and it's a foundational stone in our society. Marriage is what makes a stable society. It is a proven fact that children develop best in a stable and loving husband and wife stable home. Proven fact. It's a proven fact that the happiest couples on planet Earth who have the most sex are those in monogamous marriages for life. Not in changing partners every two minutes, which is filled with anxiety, but within a stable marriage. The act of covenanting together before God and others and leaving and cleaving our parents is a beautiful ordinance created by a good and gracious God. 
And Jesus himself in the New Testament, whenever he teaches about marriage, do you know what he does? He goes back to these verses, showing us it's not just an Old Testament thing. This is an all-of-life thing till we meet in heaven. That's why marriage vows are so important and why you should think very carefully before you get married. And it's also why adultery is so damaging. That's why marriage is so important and why divorce is so destructive and should always be the very, very last resort for anybody. That's why marriage is so important and why we need to fight for it to be between a man and a woman as God intended it to be. It's an amazing provision, a beautiful gift from God that we need to fight for and celebrate and support. And if you change it, you lose what God has created the world to be like. And you begin to to chip away at the foundations of the world and of society. But as I end, God's provision of marriage has an even deeper meaning this morning. God's provision of marriage actually points forward to another marriage, the marriage of Christ and his church. Just like Eve was taken from Adam's side and the first marriage happened, so Jesus' side was pierced and as he died, his bride, the church, was formed. Adam was placed in a deep, kind of death-like sleep and Eve was created. Christ died slept in the tomb and when he rose a new age began and the church was formed. Marriage therefore is simply a picture of Christ and his church. Again notice how God has provided everything for us. He formed our bodies, he placed us in this amazing and beautiful world to live in, to worship him and enjoy him. He's given us order, he's given us boundaries and he's given us amazing friendships. And then even when we sinned against him and rebelled against all that goodness that he's given us, he even provided his own son as the way that we can be made right with him. As we're going to sing in a minute, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There's no more for heaven now to give. God's provision is all over this chapter and should cause us to break out in song and praise like Adam does when he sees Eve. Praise God that we have this beautiful world. Praise God that he's formed us in his image from the dust. Praise God that we have friends. Praise God for marriage. But praise God that Christ came to redeem us, to restore us, and to take us to be with him one day in heaven. And at the beginning, notice at the end of the chapter, in verse 25, Adam and Eve felt no shame. They were naked with no embarrassment because they had total trust between them and God and with each other. They had nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to be embarrassed about. All that's going to change next week as we look at Genesis 3. Amen? Amen.